Well, we have our reading in Romans chapter 8 this morning, and we resume uh, from where we left off last time, so we pick up in verse 26, and we'll read to verse 30. Romans chapter 8, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And we ask God's blessing on the reading of his word this morning. Well, let's pray together as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks for this time together. And we thank you, Lord, that in coming and in reading your word, we place you at the very heart of all that we do, of all our worship this morning. Lord, we ask that as we hear your words, Lord, that you would implant it within us, that you would shape us by it. And Lord, that you would have us uh, transformed this coming week into an ever closer likeness to Christ. Lord God, we thank you for your goodness to us and ask your blessing upon us in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you saw in the news just at the tail end of this week, there is a family in Edinburgh that have made the headlines because they are one of the few families in the UK to have six generations currently alive and all living in a fairly short distance of one another. The eldest member of the family is, I think, in her mid-80s. Uh, and the youngest is about three weeks old. Uh, but there are six of them uh, in this uh, intergenerational family. It's astonishing to see, um, I think the Guinness World Record for number of living generations of a family is seven. Uh, so I'm not quite convinced that they're going to make it to that point, but who knows? You, you just never know what the future holds. But it's astonishing to see that. And it's one of those things that when people see the the headline, and even in the way that the story was reported, there was a sort of sense of, isn't this funny? Isn't this really unusual? It's a little bit weird to have that many generations of a family, and I'm sure there are certain folks that read that and had certain views about the kind of family that must be on the basis of so many of them being together. It's the same experience that I have read uh, a number of folks that have um, let's say, more than the, the, a standard two children experience. And in one uh, essay that I'd read by a, a woman in the States who has five kids, um, she mentioned that people very often ask all sorts of questions like, did you intend to have that many children? Are you crazy? And so on. Because big families, although they were the norm, are now seen as being unusual. Well, they are unusual. The birth rate is falling in the West, and it's normal to have Uh, One child, maybe two, uh, but more than that is unusual. And certainly to have many generations living in close proximity all in one another's lives is not seen as the normal anymore. But there's a reason why these situations 
are good. And that is that the family unit was created for the nurture and care of people, (laughs) of children. And it's beneficial to have multiple generations all uh, in close proximity together. It might not always feel that way to those in that particular circumstance, but it is. It's beneficial to have uh, large families all living around one another so that we can all care for and build up one another. That is what the church is. It's a big family. And it's supposed to be just like a big family where we're in and out of one another's lives. We know each other well and deeply. We care for one another. We support one another. And the reason for this is that as human beings, God has made us amazingly complex and yet at the same time remarkably frail. He's done so, I think, in part to have us rely on one another, to have us rely ultimately on Him. As human beings, we need help at every stage of our lives. And it is a foolish person who thinks they can coast through life without anybody else helping, supporting, guiding, or without them helping and supporting and guiding somebody else. And Paul is beginning to draw this theme out in the book of Romans, and he does so particularly in this passage this morning, that that as Christians we need, it's not optional, it's not something that we might want to have just in the background in case we need it at some point in life. We need, as an essential element of our discipleship, help at every stage in life. This is, like I've said, the great blessing of the church, but it runs much deeper than that. Paul tells us in Romans 8, 26 to 30, that God himself enters into our lives in order that he might be the help that we need. And he unpacks that a little in these verses, uh, which contain some remarkably complicated words that perhaps as I read them earlier on, you thought, oh no and felt a certain sinking in your heart that words like foreknew and predestined floated around in there somewhere, and we're going to have to figure out what these words mean and what we do with them, and we'd just rather not and just go for lunch. But we'll come to that. In this passage, God tells us that though we need help at every stage in life, His Spirit is sent to help us. Paul tells us the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And there's a few interesting things in these opening couple of verses. He starts, likewise, which ties it into what's gone before. We can't forget the rest of Romans 8, and in fact the rest of Romans 1 to 7 for that matter, as we hear these words. This is concerned with uh, our salvation. This is concerned with uh, the world around us that is groaning for transformation to come, for it, the world to be made new like it was created to be in the first place, free from sin. Through the revealing of the sons of God, God glorifies himself in the redemption of his creation. And Paul is continuing this thought in, we, all creation, are longing for a day when we are perfect, when we are free from sin, but that day isn't here yet. It hasn't come. We're not yet fully glorified. We don't fully demonstrate the glory of God in unspoiled uh, perfection because we are frail and we fail and we cannot manage on our own. So Paul says the Spirit comes to help us in that weakness. It's not so much a physical frailty, although Paul certainly includes uh, something of that in here, that the creation is physically uh, ruined by sin and so we... um, 
we experience sickness and suffering and death and uh, we betray one another, we betray ourselves and so on. Certainly Paul is, uh, is including that, but it runs deeper than that. Paul is talking about what he's mentioned in chapter 7, his weakness and that he knows the good things that he should do, but for some reason he just can't bring himself to do it. And he knows the terrible things that he ought to avoid that affront God and let God down. And yet for some reason he just can't help himself but indulging in those things. And Paul is frustrated. That is the weakness that he's really getting at here. The thing that sits at the heart of it all. It's sin itself. And he's going on to talk about how sin leads us to the point where we can't even pray to God. One of the most simple and in many ways most natural things for us to do. And sometimes we maybe don't feel like it's natural, it's, it's a real work. But if you speak to anyone, sometimes non-Christian people will tell you that in a moment of extreme need where they felt their life was at risk or a loved one was sick or was dying and they didn't know what else to do, what they automatically did was wanted to pray. And perhaps that's a reason they've given you for not believing in God because they prayed and then the dreadful thing happened anyway as if somehow God owes them uh, in this life. But Paul tells us that's what sin does. It so distances us, separates us away from God that the very means of communication God has given us all simply speaking to him is damaged and corrupted and we just don't know what to do. We don't know how to pray. We don't know how to converse with a God who from the beginning has lived in that conversational relationship with his creation. Adam and Eve walk in the garden of Eden with God and talk to him. When God speaks to them, there's no surprise on their voice uh, when they respond in, in, in the garden. They're used to speaking with God. This is what it is to be made in the image of God. In Whatever, you know, exalted view we have of the created order, however much we might love our our pets and, and the created world around us, mankind is created unique in that it knows and responds to God in conversation. And so it's the most damaging thing of all when we are not able to speak to God. When I was reading this and thinking about this this week, the, um, the scene in um, an Indiana Jones movie came to mind where in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, I think it is, um, he is lamenting, Indiana Jones, the great sort of swashbuckling archaeologist, is lamenting the fact that his dad was never there for him when he was younger. His dad was obsessed uh, with archaeology and with the pursuit of the Holy Grail and That's what the the whole movie is about, if you haven't seen it. And he finally gets to sit down with his dad, now as a grown man and his dad in old age, and and laments the fact that his dad wasn't a good dad in his view. He was never there for me. And Sean Connery, who plays his dad, says, what are you talking about? I was a great dad. I basically just let you do whatever you want. And Indiana Jones says, but you weren't there for me. We never talked. And so... His dad sets down the work that they were looking at and says, okay then, let's talk. What do you want to talk about? And Indiana Jones just stutters and splutters and he's got nothing to say. He, he doesn't know, I, I can't think of a single thing to say to you. And he says, so what are you complaining about? Let's just get on with the task at hand. And that's something of what sin does to us in our relationship with God. Why we need help. Why the Spirit is sent to us. Because we 
so often don't pray when we ought to. And in those moments where we feel we have no other alternative and we so desperately need to pray, we come to God and there's nothing there. What do I say? What do I do? How do we communicate? That line of communication has become so atrophied, we are so weak, there's nothing there when we need it most. It's so important for us in the relationship we have with God, now that he has redeemed us, if we've cast ourselves upon Christ and asked for his forgiveness, it is so crucial that we live in ongoing living communication with God. It's so crucial that we are helped to that end then because God understands our weakness. So the Spirit comes and helps us to pray. You've maybe wondered, like I have, what these verses really mean. Because although the words themselves are quite simple, it's quite challenging to know how they apply to us. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. Okay, we understand what that means. We do not know what to pray for as we ought. Okay, I can get that. Sometimes I don't understand the circumstances I'm in, and so I pray for something, and I'm maybe not praying for the thing I should be praying for. In my limited understanding, I'm, I'm doing the thing that children do. We're coming to a parent and saying, I really, really want chips and ice cream. And no sane parent recognizes that chips and ice cream in the same bowl is a good option for children, and yet for some inexplicable reason, young children seem to think that this is a reasonable thing to ask for, or whatever outlandish concoction of food it is they want. And so they ask, and they ask, and they ask. And this is what we do with God. We don't really know what's best for us, so we ask and ask and ask. Sometimes, like those parents that are asked for chips and ice cream, God gives that particular thing and then just watches as the horror unfolds in your mind as you realize just how ghastly a concoction that, uh, that thing is, and sometimes he doesn't. But we can understand that we don't know what to pray for as we ought. But what does it mean that the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words? What kind of help is that? What I want to know is how to pray. What I want to know is that when I pray, God is really hearing me. What I want to know is that he's responding to me. This is the help I so often need. That's what I want. But what does this mean? That the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. It sounds mystical and a bit weird. What we understand, or we are to understand by this, is that the Holy Spirit aids us in praying by teaching us how to pray. The Spirit intercedes in prayer for us, and I think this means a couple of different things. I think it means, firstly, what we may think intercession means, that the Spirit stands in our place. He stands between us and our Heavenly Father, and He prays the thing that we ought to pray, that we're just sort of mumbling along, doing the best we can, and the Spirit understands what we really mean and prays that on our behalf. And I think that's true to a degree. I think there have been many times in my life and perhaps in yours where the situation has been so desperate, so grief-stricken, so stressful, that I've simply had to come before God and and just say, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say to you. I don't know what to pray. Sometimes there haven't even been words to go with that. I've just had to somehow try and express the pain or the frustration or the stress or the misery or the joy that I'm feeling. And the knowledge that the Spirit will make sense of this somehow before God. 
I'm sure that that is a part of the Spirit's intercession because that is what an intercessor does. Stands between two parties and negotiates, translates, communicates on behalf of one who is not able to do so. But there's more to what's going on here than just that. The Holy Spirit prays, we are told, with groanings for us. Too deep for words. And I think what Paul is doing here is drawing on a meaning of intercession that we're going to see elsewhere in the book of Romans and that we find elsewhere um, in Scripture, in Hebrews, for example, where the act of interceding for somebody else changes the individual you're interceding for. This is what Jesus does, and the writer of Hebrews reminds us of that, doesn't he? Where uh, Jesus intercedes for us before God. We can't come to God. We can't please him. We can't justify ourselves before him because we're sinners, and sin marks everything about us. So Jesus stands in our place and pleads our case. He cleanses us. He forgives us. He restores us. And as a result, we who are interceded for are changed. And the really fascinating thing about that is we're brought into right relationship with God. We're drawn closer to God constantly by Christ. And he keeps interceding for us. But the intercession draws us closer and closer. And there will come a day where there is no more need for that intercession. Where we will be with God in glory and there will be nothing that comes between us and him. And so I think we have that here where the Spirit is not just speaking on our behalf. He doesn't stand like a teacher who receives some written report that we've produced and with a red pen says, no, you can't ask for that. That's ridiculous. Or what you really meant to say here was this and then presents the report to God the Father and says, this is what they meant. I don't think it it means just that. I think the Spirit intercedes and teaches us how to pray constantly. This is what Paul is talking about from this point right the way through the book of Romans, is that the Spirit constantly teaches us through the application of God's Word how to be more and more like Christ. He's constantly leading us closer and closer to Christ as Christ draws us closer and closer into the presence of His Father. And so as the Spirit who lives within us when we become Christians ministers to us, applies God's Word, so He leads us to pray as we ought. So we grow in prayer. It's been one of the most wonderful experiences of my life to, at certain points, stop and just reflect back over how my Christian life has gone. And there have been ups and downs and frustrations and successes, but I have seen more often than not in my prayer life how much I've grown. I've seen times in my life where uh, my prayer life has been not easy, That's not quite what I I mean, but there has been a a, a sort of a a connection with God, a level of sort of fluidity in that relationship where God speaks in his word and I read it and I hear what he's saying and I respond to him in prayer. And there is a fluency to my prayer, if you like, that is grounded in God's word. It uses the language of scripture. It prays for the things that God is desiring as he reveals them in his word. And I can see those times in my life where I've really grown in my prayer life. 
They've been like if you chop down a tree and you can count all the rings, you can see the times in the tree's life where there have been great growth spurts in it and the rings are really far apart and you can see times where there have been really difficult experiences in the life of the tree. There hasn't been much water, hasn't been much sun and the rings are all really densely packed together and the tree hasn't grown all that much. So it is in our prayer life. The Spirit intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words and he who searches hearts and minds uh, knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Who knows the Spirit? Who knows the Father better than the Spirit? No one. This is what we've touched on already in the book of Romans. The Spirit understands to the nth degree exactly what God the Father is, is planning and is working out in his creation. None knows it better. And so the Spirit who resides within us works in us to lead us on and have us grow. What he's doing is having us grow in that direction. And he leads us through good times and through bad times, but always that we grow in that direction. And so when the Spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words, what I think Paul is getting at here is not that the Spirit has some kind of other language that we don't have access to where he can communicate with God on some more foundational level. I don't think that's what's going on here at all. I think what it means is that the Spirit is leading us on, is murmuring constantly in our ear to have us grow in our depth of understanding so that we pray in accordance with God's will. This is also drawing on that imagery that we've already had in the whole of creation groaning for salvation. Creation is constantly pushing to go in this way of redemption, but cannot apart from God's power in salvation, in redemption. And that is what the Spirit is doing. He is having us groan for redemption grown for growth in our maturity and the depth of relationship we have with our God. That is what the Spirit is groaning for and that is what he leads us to long for, to groan for in the same way. And he equips us to see that end come. When I was a swimming instructor, I loved being a swimming instructor. I was also a lifeguard. I didn't enjoy that quite so much. I don't know if it was just the responsibility of having to watch after people and potentially haul them out of a swimming pool if it all went horribly wrong. But I loved being a swimming instructor. We had kids age four and five coming along and taking their first sort of tentative effort in the swimming pool. It was amazing to see. But one of the greatest frustrations I had uh, was that it didn't always work out the way you wanted it to. So what would happen is you would teach a class for a term, and at the end of the term, you would give your class to another swimming instructor in the pool, and they would assess them, they would test them, and they would either pass or fail, and they would get a badge and a certificate, and would progress on to the next level, or have to stay in the same class for the next session, uh, and relearn the things that they hadn't quite got. And there was one particular session at the end of which I received a class to assess, and had to fail an entire class of five-year-old kids because they just couldn't do it. I don't know what they'd been doing with their teacher, but they could not pass the test. And so I had to fail them and then deal with the angry parents shouting at me in the reception afterwards as I gave them feedback to say, I'm really sorry, but none of your kids passed. None of them. A whole class of 10 or 12 kids. And so as my reward for that, in the end, the, the swimming pool manager said, that's great. You can teach that class in the next session. I thought, great. Excellent. The parents are going to love that. 
I would point out that all the kids passed in the next session after that. And I'm sure that was just a, an accumulation of their learning rather than any expertise on my part. But, but I longed to see them pass. I desperately wanted them to get through that assessment. Who doesn't want a five-year-old child trying their hardest to succeed? But they just couldn't do it. They just weren't up to the task. And so in the end, I had to spend a whole term equipping them for the task so that they definitely would pass next time. Didn't want angry parents shouting at me again. This is the work of the Spirit in our lives. The Spirit works as God leads us in life. God doesn't set us a task and then just hope that we'll fail because He's just that kind of God. He just loves it when people don't quite match up to His perfect standard because it reveals how high that standard is and how good He is. God's not like that at all. God is like our Heavenly Father that we've thought about in the service already. Desperate to see us pass. Desperate to see us do well in every circumstance in life. And so He sends His Spirit. And his spirit leads us on and equips us. And when we fail, we are cleansed, picked up, and set back on the path. Again, through the spirit's work. The spirit intercedes for us constantly with groanings too deep for words. Because he wants to see us do well. And he teaches us that we would be desperate to see us do well. In line with the will of God. The Spirit prays in line with God's will to that end. It doesn't take over our prayer lives. He's not the spiritual equivalent of the dad who takes the son fishing and then at the first bite of the fish snatches the rod away and says, don't worry, I'll help you and lands the fish. The Spirit constantly builds up and trains and equips so that we will do well in the end. And he does this in a couple of different ways. He does it in verses 28 through to 30 by providing us with the certainty of God's goodness in all things. These are are perhaps difficult verses that we've grappled with for years. Challenging words. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, the temptation is for us to read these verses in isolation from the two that have just gone before, in isolation from the seven and a half chapters that we've just read, but they're all strung one onto the next, and Paul has no intention of us separating these verses out as sort of coffee cup kind of verses that we encourage one another with. God is working all things together for your good. Well, that's nice, but it doesn't help us when things are going really, really badly. And that's the context of what Paul's talking about to these believers in Rome, when things are going really, really badly. So he says, the Spirit is constantly working in your lives to lead you on to maturity, to help you grow. He's interceding according to the will of God. And Paul runs the thought on, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. His expectation is that the work of the Spirit in our lives will reveal to us that even when we suffer, God is doing whatever is necessary in your life to have you grow and mature so that you understand God rightly and your relationship with Him rightly. So that you can respond to the the difficulties and the challenges of your life on a day-to-day basis in the right manner. And this all goes hand in hand together with our prayer life. 
It's what we've talked about in previous weeks. It's what Peter talks about in his epistle when he says that we shouldn't flee from trial and from difficulty, from temptation and from hardship. We don't want to to distance uh, distance ourselves from these things because it's in going through these things that we're made stronger. It's in going through these things that God's grace and mercy is poured out in even greater abundance because we desperately need it in those moments. And so Paul says that the realization must come to us that God is working all things together for good. Not that all things are good, but even the terrible, the negative, the awful, even in the sinful things in this life, God is working for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. That we might be blessed, that we might be more mature, that we might grow, that we might worship God in any situation. And Paul knows this from his own experience as we've thought about going through this book so far. And to to draw out what he means by this, to help the Romans and to help us understand what he's talking about, he says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he called, and those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he glorified. There is no break in his line of reasoning. One flows on from the next, and his meaning is this. That you can be assured of God's love in any circumstance, however horrendous, however good, however challenging, however easy, in this. That you belong to him. And if you belong to him, it didn't come around by happenstance. It wasn't chance that you staggered into a church one day, one Sunday morning, and heard something you liked and then just became part of that family. That's not what being a Christian is. Paul says, if you are a Christian, then God himself has foreknown you. Now, that doesn't mean that God has looked down the corridors of time and has seen that you're the kind of person who will believe in him. And because you're the kind of person that will believe in him, God has made sure that you're in the right place at the right time to become a Christian. That's not what it means. For the the grammatically minded, foreknew here is a verb, not a noun. It's not something that God possesses. God owns foreknowledge because he has seen it. He has passively taken it in. That's not what it means. It's something God does. It is an act of God. So Peter, when he preaches at Pentecost, says to the crowds, he tells them about Jesus, and he's trying to help them understand that Jesus is their Messiah and just how awful a situation they're in because they've just killed him. And he says that Jesus came and was crucified at the behest of Pilate, and the Roman soldiers, and the Jews in Jerusalem, and God had foreknown it. Now, we know from elsewhere in Scripture that there is no question that Jesus would come and would, go, would die on behalf of sinners. It's not a question. God has determined that this thing will happen. That's the same word here. God foreknew you, not a vague, faceless group of people. That doesn't work. Paul is talking to individual people here. You, who have trusted in Christ, God, in eternity past, has created things in such a way that you would hear the gospel. Those who he foreknew, he predestined. He actually put plans in place for you to be in the right place at the right time to hear the gospel. And how many of you can testify to that in your own life, in your own experience where you shouldn't have been there on that day and yet you were and you bumped into someone and they said this thing to you and your eyes were opened or you started to ask questions and it was coincidence. 
It was just chance. You just happened to be in the right place at the right time. Paul's saying this is, this is God's work of predestination. His work in the world where he orders things according to his own plan to bring about those whom he foreknew. To bring about the salvation of all those that he has foreknown. So that they would be conformed to the image of his son. Now Paul's talking to people so that you would be conformed to the image of his son. So that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That you might all know the life that Jesus has. He's given it to you when he redeemed you. And Paul says, as a continuation of that, those whom he predestined, those who he placed in the right time, at the right place, that they would hear the gospel, that they would respond in faith, he called through that gospel message. When you heard the gospel, could you have done anything else with that information? No. It kind of crashed home into your life and you suddenly realized your sinful state before God, your need for salvation, and the fact that there was no one else who could help you save Jesus. And in that moment, you you recognized you had to cast yourself upon Christ. And it may be that it didn't all come at once and that over years you've looked back and recognized that what's happened. But God foreknew you and predestined you and then has called you in time at a place And when that happened, he justified you. Christ's death and resurrection was applied to your life. You were made right before God. And you were glorified. You were raised up with Christ. And one day will be raised up with Christ perfectly. What Paul is doing here and putting what's become known as the golden chain of redemption into this passage is he is assuring the believers in Rome that the Spirit understands your weakness, understands your frailty, how often you will fail God, and he is helping you constantly. He is helping you by teaching you how to pray, by reminding you of what God has said in his word, and what has God said in his word? That you were a sinner, Christ has come, you have been saved, and one day you will be glorified with Christ. And you are somewhere on that journey with him. And if God has placed your feet on that path, why would he ever take your feet back off again? What would he withhold from you to have you walk in that way? Nothing. You're going to go through hard times. You're going to suffer. It's going to be difficult. But remember what God's Spirit is teaching you from his word. That you were foreknown and predestined and called and justified and are being glorified. This is how good a father God is for you. This is how much care and help God gives you in your weakness. He reminds you constantly all the time of the depth of his love. This is how far I have gone for you. This is how much I have achieved for you so that you can know me and speak to me. So speak and know me as I know you. God is for us to such a degree That he delights in us growing, however faltering that growth might be. His spirit is poured out to us in Christ that we might be helped because we are weak. So let's acknowledge our weakness and enjoy the help that God provides. Let us grow stronger in the knowledge of our salvation, of where it's come from, what it's for, and where it's leading us. That we might be stronger even in the face of great tribulation and terrible trials. Let's pray together. Lord God, we give you thanks for your word. Lord, we give you thanks for these 
particular words that we've read this morning. Lord, they're they're difficult. They're hard for us to get our heads around. We don't understand how you could have done this, why you would have done this, saving people like us, and yet you have. And Lord, you expect us to grow in the strength uh, of our faith in these words. So Lord, we ask that your spirit might come among us, might fill us, might help us to pray, might assure us of your presence. Lord, would lead us in our journey of salvation. Lord God, we ask that you would fill us with confidence that if we were once sinners and Lord, you lifted us up from death to life, then all those around us who continue in that way might also be lifted from death to life. For it is not our own work that has seen salvation come, but yours from eternity past. So Lord God, we lay all our family members and friends before you who do not yet know Christ as their Savior. Lord, it breaks our heart that they don't know you. And we ask that in Jesus, you might redeem them. Lord, that they may be foreknown by you, predestined, called, justified, and might glorify you as they are themselves glorified. Lord God, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.